millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, Intercepted listeners. It's Naomi Klein, Senior Contributing Writer at The Intercept and Co-Director of the Center for Climate Justice at the University of British Columbia. I wanted to drop in and share a live stream I recently co-hosted called Egypt's Carceral Climate Summit. Eleven years ago, Cairo's Tahrir Square captured the world's imagination with a hopeful youth-led movement for liberation and democracy. Day after day, night after night, young people held that square, refusing to leave until their country was transformed. They turned Tahrir into a site of radical participatory democracy, where they denounced corruption and systemic torture. They faced down police, risked their lives, and vowed to avenge their murdered friends. Eventually, they built enough power to topple Hosni Mubarak, the dictator who had ruled Egypt for three brutal decades. The spirit of Tahrir coursed with promise, and it leapt across borders. It helped inspire other youth-led movements in Europe and North America, including Occupy Wall Street, which in turn helped birth a new anti-capitalist and eco-socialist politic. In fact, you can draw a pretty straight line from Tahrir to Occupy to Bernie, to AOC, and the Sunrise Movement, calling for a Green New Deal. Now, inspiration is a tough thing to measure, but there can be no doubt that the world owes the youth of Tahrir a debt of gratitude. But inside Egypt, the story did not end well. Elections came before the youth movement had time to coalesce into an electoral force, and inside that vacuum, the Muslim Brotherhood came to power at the ballot box. They didn't deliver the change for which young Egyptians had risked their lives, and so they took to the streets again. And in the discontent, the military saw its opening. In 2013, it staged a coup, placing in power General Abdul Fattah al-Sisi. Later, he traded in his uniform for a dark business suit, ran for president in sham elections, and has been in power ever since. In Egypt today, much of civil society, including environmental activism, is criminalized. Human rights activists, journalists, and academics are routinely arrested. Critical news sites are blocked. And tens of thousands of political prisoners languish behind bars, including iconic voices of that hopeful Arab Spring uprising like Aleh Abad al-Fatah. This is the highly repressive context in which a different kind of mass gathering will soon take place in Egypt. In less than a month, the Egyptian resort city of Sharm el-Sheikh will play host to the annual United Nations Climate Summit, known as COP27. Tens of thousands of delegates will attend, including many youth activists. But this time, don't expect any unruly protests. This will be a highly contained, controlled, and orchestrated summit, unprecedented in its constraints. Meanwhile, the Egyptian activists who once inspired the world are not able to attend at all. Many, like Aleh, are in prison. Others are in exile. And for those who are not, the risks of disrupting the government's green PR show would simply be too high. Today's event is about the ethics of holding a climate summit under such a repressive regime, a cop in a cop state. 
We're going to ask whether Egypt's political prisoners are getting the solidarity they deserve from the international climate movement. Inside the climate justice movement, we often talk about needing to build a politic that does not create sacrifice zones. Those places and people who get trampled in the name of getting a law passed or a deal done. Yet many Egyptians today tell us that they feel that they have become the new sacrifice zone, that their imprisoned loved ones are being sacrificed in the name of these climate negotiations. These are tough issues, and we're going to explore them with some of the smartest and most courageous people I know. I hope it provides some important political context as Egypt enters the global spotlight ahead of COP27. I'll be co-hosting this livecast with an expert on Egypt's environmental politics, my UBC and CCJ colleague, Rafi Arafin, who joins me now. Thanks, Naomi. Uh, My name is Rafi Arafin, and I'm an assistant professor at the University of British Columbia. So I've seen through my research on urban environmental politics in Egypt how the state in the last decade has repressed environmental struggles and movements in a time really when these struggles and movements have become most needed. Rapid climate change in the region has meant hotter days in places like Cairo and sea level rise and flooding in cities like Alexandria and across the agricultural lands of the Delta. Climate action is needed in Egypt today. But as Mona Saif recently tweeted, quote, the reality most of those participating in COP27 are choosing to ignore is not just that human rights and climate justice are interlinked, but in countries like Egypt, your true allies, the ones who actually give a damn about the planet's future are those languishing in prisons. So when international delegates make the decision to travel to the UN's climate conference, it's usually a careful calculation, really a a trade-off, a strategic weighing of the costs, the emissions of travel, the steep price of resort and conference hotels, the time lost away from local struggles, and many more. These costs are weighed against the benefits, right? Having a seat at the table, making connections, representing voices that are often excluded in these conversations, from indigenous nations to racialized and working people in both the global south and north. Then there really is hope that this COP, this one might be different. The possibility of a small win in the fight for climate justice. What we will argue today that this COP is indeed different. It will be different. The calculus has shifted. This year's summit is taking place under a regime known for its mass repression. If truly just climate action requires open and free political expression, Sharm el-Sheikh will not be the place that provides either. We know this. But ignoring this fact will not just lead to another failed or underwhelming COP. COP27 in Egypt could lend social and political license to a government desperately looking for international legitimacy to fuel its ongoing external debt and military aid. Does the delicate and careful calculus for this COP really make sense? Is the trade-off worth the lives of thousands of political prisoners? At what point really do we say enough? So today we'll be discussing these questions and more. Uh, Before introducing though our panelists, I'd really like to thank both The Intercept, specifically Lauren Feeney and Travis Manon, 
uh, and the UBC Center for Climate Justice and our wonderful research manager, Sarah Nelson, for helping us to set up and really run this, this event. For the rest of our time together today, we'll first hear from Bill McKibben and Sharif Abdul Qudus. Bill McKibben is a noted author, educator, and environmentalist, and a founder of 350.org, and of course, his latest endeavor, Third Act. Sharif is an award-winning Egyptian independent journalist who has reported throughout the Middle East and around the world. Sharif also works as an editor at Matamos, Egypt's leading independent media outlet. Bill and Sharif will discuss the relationship between climate action and political freedoms, focusing on Egypt's human rights situation today. After that, we'll hear from Sanat Sif about her brother, writer, and activist, Ala Abdel Fattah, and his continued imprisonment. Sanat is a prominent youth activist who was involved in Egypt's 2011 revolution and a filmmaker most known for her work editing and shooting the 2013 film, The Square. Finally, we'll hear from Omar Robert Hamilton on greenwashing and the state of climate and environmental action and inaction in Egypt. Omar is an award-winning filmmaker and writer. He's also co-founder of the Mosriyin Media Collective and the Palestine Festival of Literature. His most recent book is the uh, celebrated novel, which I highly recommend, uh, about Egypt's 2011 revolution, The City Always Wins. So let's get started with our first discussion here with Bill and Sharif. I'll pass it uh, to Naomi for, for the first question. Thanks so much, Rafi. Um, I'm going to start with you, Bill. Um, there's a lot of people watching who love you, who are part of the climate movement. So first, tell us where you are, why you're in bed, um, and whether we should be worried. And second of all, tell us about this 27th United Nations Climate Summit. You have been to a lot of these things. You and I actually met at an earlier COP in 2009 in Copenhagen. Um, what makes this, this, this conference different? What's at stake in this particular round of negotiations in Sharm el-Sheikh? Well, first of all, Naomi, uh, uh, such a pleasure to join you and not to worry about me at all. I'm sorry that I appear in such parlous condition, but I'm I had some unexpected surgery yesterday and I'm still in the hospital, but I, I did not want to miss this opportunity because I can't really think of anything more important that we could be doing this r right now. Um, you're right. I've been to many of these cops over the years in, in my work on, uh, and on climate. And um, this one is, uh, as Rafi was saying a minute ago, going to be very different. It's really the first one held in a kind of active police state. And I think that the um, I think that the first realization that has to kind of wash over most of us who are going is that uh, were we Egyptians, we'd be in jail. We wouldn't be at the cop. Um, that the things that we've done, Naomi, that you've done, that I've done, whatever, would have been way more than sufficient to land us uh, 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 an equally long term in an Egyptian prison. And so we have absolutely no choice but to try and figure out how to speak out and stand up for the people who are there. Um, you know, to the degree that we've been able to get anything done as a climate movement, it's been because we've been able to mobilize in the streets to do the kind of work that just is impossible right at the moment 
in in Egypt. So we're going to have to try and be at least a little bit of voice for people who don't have it. It is an important meeting. It's the first COP that's been held in Africa, and there'll be a lot of focus on the unfairness of global north-south relations. The entire continent of Africa has put about 2% of greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere, and yet they're taking the hardest hit of any place on Earth. So it's, you know, that's, that's why people have been hopeful that this could be a significant COP. But uh, uh, that doesn't mean for a minute that one overlooks the context in which it's taking place. Hopefully, hopefully, we'll be able to exert some leverage one way or another to get people out of jail, to open things up at least a crack in a repressive society. Thanks so much, Bill. We'll come back to you again. Sharif, a question for you. So a lot of people are attending the COP and know a really like a great deal about climate change, right? But very little about Egypt. Can you zoom out a bit and give us a, a bigger picture of the human rights situation in Egypt today? Uh, you know, from our opening, right, we just saw images of Egyptians flooding the streets and overthrowing a dictator in 2011. What, what really is the situation now? Well, uh, as we heard, you know, the 2000 revolution was followed by uh, a a very harsh and brutal uh, counter-revolutionary wave uh, with the takeover of the country in 2013, uh, essentially by the military with Abdel Fattah al-Sisi at its head um, and backed by the police and and security apparatus. And what we've seen since then is that Egypt is run by a very tight, closed circle um, of military and intelligence officers um, that is completely opaque in its decision-making process that does not allow for any political openings or political participation and does not brook any kind of dissent or opposition. And it's clear that um, prison is essentially the government's answer to any problem with the citizen. Uh, There are quite literally tens of thousands of political prisoners in Egypt right now. We actually don't know uh, the number of detainees. There's estimates, um, but there's just no official statistics. And this forces lawyers and human rights advocates and independent media to try and painstakingly tabulate the the thousands trapped behind bars. Um, Over the past several, several years, Egypt's built over two dozen new prisons to house all these detainees. Uh, just last year, Sisi announced the establishment of the Wadi Natrun prison complex, which is where Ali Abdel Fattah is currently being detained. Um, he announced it as one of seven or eight, quote, American-style prisons uh, that are being built. And these prison complexes include courts and judicial buildings within, within them, uh, presumably to make the conveyor belt from the courthouse to the prison cell more efficient. Um, The majority of political prisoners are being held in pretrial detention. Uh, They can spend years behind bars without ever being convicted of a crime. Uh, Nearly all of them face these kind of twin charges of spreading false news and belonging to a terrorist organization. Um, You know, if you're in prison, if you if you get sick, you're in trouble. Uh, Conditions are extremely poor. Uh, We've seen many cases of prisoners dying in custody as a result of medical negligence. torture and abuse by the security forces is also widespread. Um, Also, the number of death sentences has skyrocketed over the last eight years, um, with executions often uh, carried out en masse. And we've also seen 
um, a massive crackdown on press freedom uh, with a near complete takeover of the media landscape um, with the regime kind of tightly controlling the press, not only through censorship, but through acquisition. So the General Intelligence Service, which is the intelligence branch of the military, has become the largest media owner of the country. It owns newspapers and uh, TV outlets. Um, and meanwhile, independent journalists have to operate on the margins and in a very hostile environment. Um, hundreds of news websites are blocked. And Egypt ranks as the third worst jailer of journalists in the world. And it imprisons actually um, more journalists on charges of false news than any other country in the world. Um, but essentially, this, this regime doesn't allow for kind of any political space. And it essentially sees its citizens mostly as a threat. So protests of any form um, or public gatherings of any kind are banned and demonstrations are usually met with a very harsh security crackdown and they're followed by mass arrest sweeps. Um, we've also seen an unprecedented crackdown on civil society, which is one of uh, the oldest and richest in the region. Uh, human rights organizations have been forced to scale back their operations or shut down completely. Their staff are subject to travel bans and asset freezes and, uh, and arrest. And all of this is happening in a country which spends millions and millions uh, on massive weapons purchases, becoming the third largest importer of arms in the world, um, all while bringing the economy kind of, you know, to the edge of collapse and, and, and debt default. Uh, so I could go on, but this is kind of just a quick picture of the repressive nature of this government. And it's a government that's hosting, you know, this year's UN Climate Conference. Yeah, so just picking up on that, and thank you so much, Sharif, for that, for that horrifying overview. Um, so we're in this really surreal situation because you've just described a situation where regular NGOs that wouldn't be considered threatening in most countries are having to shut down. Human Rights Watch published a report last month that was about what you're describing, but specifically focused um, on environmental groups because of the climate summit coming and how many of them have had to disband, can't do their research anymore. Many have moved into exile. I learned that you can actually get the death sentence for receiving a foreign grant, um, uh, which is unbelievable, or life in prison. And yet, in a month from now, we're going to have thousands of NGOs and thousands of foundations descending on Sharm el-Sheikh, getting a kind of a red carpet welcome from the Egyptian government. So what game are they playing? What are they hoping to accomplish by sort of putting on this kind of theater in Sharm el-Sheikh when they clearly have such disdain for civil society and civil society is such a central part of these summits? Well, I think, yeah, it, it's twofold. Like, as we, as we heard from Bill, you know, COP27 is, is being presented as the African COP. And one thrust of this is Egypt as the host country is trying to position itself as the voice of the global south uh, and as one of the lead negotiators in unlocking billions of dollars a year in climate financing from, from the global north that's owed to the global south. Um, and but, but more importantly, I think in a broader sense, Egypt's using its position uh, as host of the summit to try and help whitewash um, or greenwash its reputation as a repressive police state. It's hired a huge PR firm, uh, the Boston Consulting Group, to help burnish its image. And it's clearly um, using the COP to lend itself further international legitimacy. And I think a lot of activists and a lot of people on the ground are very afraid of what will happen after the COP finishes, actually, and all eyes turn away. Um, but I think what we can expect in Shad Mashiach is carefully managed theater. 
you know, we, we all know the problems regarding uh, climate diplomacy and uh, UN climate summits, you know, really amounting to anything concrete, but they really are also convergence points um, for the climate justice movement, convergence points of dissent uh, with protests and informal gatherings, both inside and outside. And this will not be the case in Sharm el-Sheikh. Sharm el-Sheikh is a resort in Sinai that is, literally has a wall around it. Um, it can be very tightly controlled. Any protests that are allowed will be very carefully managed. Uh, but more importantly, as you mentioned, a lot of the members of Egyptian civil society and environmental groups that are critical of the government um, will not even be in attendance. Um, those that, that manage to be will have to be very careful in how they operate. Um, you know, these are many of the people of them, they're the ones who are in prison. They're the ones who are subject to various forms of legal harassment and, and repression. Um, and as you mentioned, it's also become very difficult and dangerous for civil society organizations to even get funding. So not too long after taking office, CC amended a decree in the penal code uh, that made receiving foreign funding to undermine, quote, the national interest or, you know, to destabilize the country, uh, punishable by life in prison or the death sentence. You know, what's quite ironic about that is that the biggest recipient of foreign funding by orders of magnitude is the government. Uh, they've taken on massive amounts of foreign debt, uh, using the money to, to fund a very flawed economic policy with wasteful mega vanity projects. And now the country's facing a real risk of defaulting on its foreign debt, which I think everyone can agree destabilizes the country. Anyway, but... You know, as Human Rights Watch also points out, there are environmental activities that are tolerated in Egypt, and this is part of kind of uh, the game that they're playing. So things that uh, uh, that are less kind of confrontational, like trash collection, recycling, uh, renewable energy, very importantly, climate finance also, these are issues that are allowed to be discussed. Uh, environmental issues that implicate the government are not tolerated in any form whatsoever. So things like industrial pollution, environmental harm from real estate or tourism development, um, issues like coal, uh, for example, are off limits. So Egyptian coal imports, much of it purchased from the United States, have risen over the past several years, driven by strong demand from the cement sector to power cement factories. And actually, Egypt's, Egypt's largest importer of coal is also its largest cement producer, and that's the El Arish Cement Company. And that was built in 2016 by none other than the Egyptian military. So any criticism of that is not tolerated in the slightest. Um, and we see these massive amounts of cement being poured into Egypt's natural environment. Um, you know, the government's built hundreds and hundreds of new bridges and roads and uh, cutting down trees and green spaces in the process. They've gone on this massive construction spree of new cities with a new administrative capital. Um, Egypt's also the second largest gas producer in Africa um, and is actively scaling up its oil and gas production. Um, so, I mean, that's all just to say that, you know, as these government officials and delegates and members of international civil society and the climate justice movement come to Sharm el-Sheikh uh, for COP27, where Egypt will really be uh, playing up its role as, as the host, um, we cannot forget that thousands of political prisoners like Ale like uh, Abdel Minim Abu Futuh, like Mohammed Oxygen, like Mohammed Bakr, like Maru Arafa, um, will remain behind bars as the summit's underway, and we should not forsake them. Thank you so much, Sharif. 
Um, I think Rafi's got a final question for Bill. And I just want to say, before we lose you, Bill, thank you so much for joining us from, from, from hospital. And those of you who are joining late, Bill's okay. He, he, he's fine. He just had surgery, but he's going to be fine. And okay, over to you, Rafi. So, so Bill, uh, given all of this, what Sharif has said, what Naomi and I have talked about, what really is the responsibility of the international climate movement here? Uh, you know, you wrote this piece in The New Yorker about one case in particular, that of Ali Abdel Fattah, uh, one of the most prominent youth leaders of the 2011 revolution, who really has spent most of the last decade behind bars. Uh, he's still in prison and is uh, currently on a prolonged hunger strike. So, Bill, what are your thoughts here about how the climate movement can be in solidarity with Ale and other prisoners of consciousness um, at, at the COP27? So I, I think that the best way the climate movement can do its thing is to act like activists and uh, and do that in, uh, in Egypt uh, as it has at... A cop after cop after cop, I, you know, I, it, it's not. It's we're going to have for people who are uh, have credentials and badges into this conference. We're going to have a certain kind of zone of safety uh, bubble around us. I think there's very little chance that the Egyptian government will uh, do anything much to foreigners who are there. That gives us a freedom of action that Egyptians do not have. And so we should figure out uh, how to take advantage of it. I'm going to be there for the first week of COP, and I hope that there are uh, some actions that people can join in that will highlight this, because among other things, it's a really important opportunity. There's going to be three or 4,000 journalists sitting there with not that much to do, because not that much happens at these cops uh, uh, in, in many ways, at least right until the very end. So it's a perfect opportunity for people to make the case that without rudimentary democratic justice, there's no way to have climate justice. Um, and and I, I, I've, I've managed at COPS in the past to do things that have uh, lost me my credentials eventually or whatever, big deal. I mean, nothing that any of us is going to do at the COP is going to change in two weeks the outcome of those negotiations. But we may be able in this one moment when there's a kind of uh, weird artificial opening uh, to be able to shed some light on what's going on in Egypt. And so, of course, we should. Uh, I, I had the real pleasure of reading that book of Elias that, uh, I, and I, I, though he's not an environmental activist exactly, it's very clear that he's of a piece with all the rest of us who have spent our lives doing this kind of stuff. And so I assume uh, so many other people behind bars as well. Uh, it's our job to speak for them since they can't speak. And, and, and so we will do our best while we're there. And then we'll go back home where, where hopefully we can figure out other ways to carry on some of this work too, just like y'all are doing today. I am so grateful for all this and, 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 Thank you guys very, very much for keeping up a, a hard, tough fight. Uh, this is an opportunity. It's an opening. We have a little bit of leverage. It's a great sin to waste leverage when you have it. Thank you, thank you so much, Will, for, for joining us uh, from hospital. And, and thank you, Sharif, as well, uh, for really giving us the lay of the land internationally and, and on the ground in Egypt.
Uh, we, we really appreciate both of your time. Thank you. Uh, now we're going to switch gears and we'll hear briefly for about three minutes um, from one of the letters that Ale has gotten out, out of prison. Uh, we'll then uh, move to hear from, from his family members. So stay with us uh, for the next few minutes. Hi, I'm Mona, Ale's sister. I'll share with you bits of his uh, letter. As you can see, for some very odd reason, it never made its way to us, so he had to rewrite. How are you, Mama? Tell me about your health. My last letter to you, the one you never got, was mainly thinking aloud about global warming because of the news from Pakistan. It was just trying out an idea I have about the rules that demography and election cycles play in the major industrial and consumer societies in tipping the balance away from taking serious measures. The idea was that aging societies, societies that rely on migrants to renew their lifeblood, societies where political rights don't extend to all taxpayers, and societies that drift further and further away from the extended family, these societies are not invested in the future and the prosperity of generations that haven't yet been born, are not invested enough to sacrifice present privileges in favor of the remote future, and they don't reward or punish politicians for the results of their decisions after they retire from office. So the first idea in the letter was that the global West and North will not do anything that involves a sacrifice of prosperity or competitive advantage, nor will they gamble with their political institutional stability. This isn't just because of the greed of big capitalists, but because of the composition of their societies. Decision makers know this. They accept it and they reproduce it. The only actions they can take are actions that are potentially profitable, like the dream of green economy, or that tap into technical solutions that don't require social change. The last part of the letter said that we Africans, mainly Africans because the Arabs at this juncture will be bogged down with the petroleum state's efforts to maximize their economic gains and translate them into ever more extreme strategic adventures for fear of the consequences of the shift away from fossil fuels, i.e. for fear of having to face the realities of the desert without petrodollars. We Africans, well, we don't have any real impact. We're not the cause of the disaster. We have no leverage. We have no leverage over the countries that are the cause. We don't have the way to propose solutions, nor, sadly, the institutions necessary to protect our continent and societies from the looming catastrophes. The bit that panicked them was probably when I moved on to the question, what's to be done? It revolved around the idea that the demography of the continent indicates that the next century could witness an African renaissance. It's the most genetically diverse continent, both for humans and for domesticated animals and plants. Maybe what we'll have to do is realize that the fight over the coming decades is not ours, that ours are the longer roads. In the letter, I thought about what this might mean, what it would need at the level of state building and institutions and alliances, what kind of knowledge would need to be produced, ideas disseminated. So that, you see, is the lost letter. It was probably well written, flowing, lucid, so maybe they felt it was dangerous, 
or as Rami Shaf said, chaos is usually the best explanation in Egypt. So the master might, <laughs> so the master might have spilled his coffee over it or just lost it or something. That was Mona Saif reading a letter from her brother, Alai Abed al-Fatah, written in prison where he is still in Cairo. Uh, he's, he's describing a letter that he had written about the climate crisis that was confiscated by his jailer. So he had to rewrite and summarize the letter, uh, which is just an example of, of just the chaos and uncertainty uh, that this extraordinary family has been living with for a decade now. And now we are joined by another member of that family, Hassana Saif. Hassana, thank you so much for joining us. I, before we talk more about Ale, I want to hear your thoughts about this summit. Hundreds of young activists are about to arrive in Egypt, including some of them in their teens and even younger. I actually know an 11-year-old uh, in India who's, who's headed to COP. And there is uh, a lot of hype coming from the Egyptian government about youth leadership. And we know that that young people have played an incredible role uh, in changing the debate and intervening and bringing a moral urgency. There's also a, a youth pavilion that, that, that the Egyptian government has created where they say young people are going to be free to, quote, speak truth to power. So I'm saying all of this to you, Sana, because you're, you're young. You're still young. You're in your 20s. But you were just 17 uh, in 2011 during the revolution. You were, you were one of the powerful voices of that revolution. You started a, a newspaper. You were one of the editors on the Oscar-nominated The Square. So what does it feel like to you? Uh, uh, and what, do, what should young activists who are on their way to Egypt in a month, what should they know about the youth movement in Egypt, what you were fighting for a decade ago? Um, and, and how do you feel when you hear the regime now celebrating its, quote-unquote, youth leaders? Um, I, I find it funny. It's typical. Like, uh, the regime always has these themes. So, for instance, there was uh, a, a year, this year is like for uh, civil society year. There was a women's year and there was a youth year. And I was arrested in woman year and in youth year. So that's typical. It's funny. But uh, that's how they do their PR. I What I would say... To, I, I don't. I no longer consider myself from the young <laughs> generation. Um, we, we tried. We did speak truth to power, and that's why we spent. Like, uh, I was lucky to be out, but uh, a lot of my friends they spent they spent their twenties in, in prisons. I was just talking to one of my friends who was released, Abdurrahman Ginti. He's a beautiful writer. We were talking yesterday, and and we were listing the names of our friends who are not going to see, who are not going to witness their 20s in freedom. So um, when you go, remember that you that you can be the voice of other young people who did speak truth to power. Um, I'm, I'm not saying go or don't go, but please let's maintain that heritage. Uh, please do actually speak truth to power. I think the, the worst trap that could happen is to imagine that... Um, you don't have that much impact or maybe your voice won't mean that much. Uh, no, it will have impact because uh, the Egyptian regime's eyes, the Egyptian regime's PR uh, 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 eyes are on, on you and they want to use you for that PR moment. So that means your voice is really valuable. Thank you. 
Um, and we've talked a lot about how many people are in prison, tens of thousands. Uh, apparently, there's just to put that in context, there's, there's apparently 35,000 delegates who are going to be in Sharm el-Sheikh for, for the COP, official delegates, which is about half the number of prisoners who are who are estimated, political prisoners, just political prisoners. Um, so people will go, they'll see thousands and thousands of tens of thousands of people, and that is just half of the political prisoners in Egypt. So what, but what does that mean? You have been a political prisoner yourself. You said you've been arrested multiple times and you spent a long time in prison. You've been on hunger strikes yourself. What is it actually like to be a political prisoner in Egypt? What can you share with us? I think also like the term political prisoner is quite misleading because it's it's not all the time uh, because of like uh, views on politics. Uh, it could be like someone is in prison, who's in prison because uh, they made a TikTok video dancing. It's it's really that random. Um, but <clears throat> prison itself, uh, it's the same as political and non-political. Uh, it's uh, it's a really intense experience. It depends on uh, it varies. So some people uh, uh, stay in solitary uh, most of the time. Uh, some people stay in very, <clears throat> very busy cells, and so there is no actual space. <laughs> There's no physical space for their bodies even to kind of <laughs> to exist. So they have to always shrink. Um, it, it, it's not like anything. Uh, someone who, like on the outside world, can I, I don't I don't see like a, a good example. But um, the main thing is that time passes and you're waiting. Um, things happen in the outside world uh, on a personal level. People get married, people have kids, people grow up. Uh, the world itself changes, uh, and and you're just on hold. But uh, but you do sense the time that is passing, and so it's it's really uh, hard. Thank you, Sana. Um, let's hear. I would I would love to just hear your perspective on your brother uh, Anela, who is in that nowhere time on hold. Um, I've heard you call him a bit of a nerd. Um, and I read these letters that he sends. Uh, and, and he's he's just such a voracious reader. He's reading Gramsci. He's he's following every bit of news he can get. Um, I, I, tell us more about what he's like and also why he is such a symbol, why we see Friella graffitis and hashtags and, 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 and why has he become such an icon in your view? A lot of the credit goes to the regime for, uh, for for oppressing him so bad and trying to use him as a um, to set an example. But also, I think it's it's because Ale is also a symbol to you know the regime is so insane. But this is a, a, a man who's trying just trying simply to keep his dignity. That's. That's what, uh, uh, what what's really making uh, making the authorities so angry about Ale is that he's willing to make any compromises, uh, uh, logical compromises. Like when 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 there are room for like conversations or negotiations, he's not an unreasonable man. He understands that uh, uh, he's weak, that uh, the movement has been defeated, but he's not willing to to be compromised himself. And that's something that's that I, I imagine a lot of people in Egypt would find inspiring because when we stood up in January 25th, it was mainly about police brutality and it was 
maybe about that we were sick of uh, not having dignity in it. and and it was like it, it was a bread freedom and dignity um, mm-hmm. and social justice uh, so I think that's what Ale, that's what uh, the main thing that inspires people about Ale there's also like this uh, uh, smaller audience that is uh, but it's also still not not a very uh, uh, it's it's also a big audience that resonates with his writings with him as an intellectual and i think that's because ale is um, ale doesn't really write about himself or his views ale just he is a good listener and a good uh, uh, um, he notices things around him and he's able to articulate them uh, in a, in a in a in a nice way so that's uh, um yeah i i i could uh, read you a bit of his uh, um, uh his last letter not uh, an old letter but about how prison feels like maybe that's uh, yeah yeah please do your, your I, and, and yeah <laughs> please do um before you start reading, can you just tell us a little bit about the hunger strike, though, which we, we haven't t- touched on yet, so to understand a little bit about what he's going through. Um, on April 2nd, he announced a hunger strike, uh, and he's very far in. So um, what's his situation now? And then, yes, please read a little of that letter if you can. Um, Ale has, um, uh, so today would be day 188 in Ale's hunger strike. Um, Ale just... It's been eight years of this ordeal, and Ale was fed up, really. Um, and so, on April second, he 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 was before that he wasn't he was really um, uh, losing hope, and he was saying like I don't have it in me to endure anymore. And somehow he found it in him to just let's fight one more last fight. So this hunger strike for him is like his last attempt and he doesn't care whether, of course he cares, he wants to live, but he's not looking to the result as much as that he's looking to, I'm just going to give this my all. And so he started an open-ended hunger strike. Um, he, he take, he's, uh, for the first 55 days, he would the, only like take water and salt solution. And then when they transferred him, to a relatively better facility, he started taking a little calories a day, so 100 calories uh, a day, um, which slowed down the deterioration process. But now we're now he looks really frail, and we're really worried that it's coming. It's inevitable at some point his body will fail him. So today would be day 188, and um, he's intact. He's in one piece. He his mind is alert, and uh, and his his spirits are. are it, it's amazing. He's like he's back to being Kale. He's back to being my brother. Um, but he looks like someone who, who's closer to death than life. Um, sh- should I read? Uh, yeah. Should I read you a snippet? Yeah, thank you. So that that was a letter that uh, he uh, he was uh, he he began the letter with saying that he will share the kind of things that he doesn't usually share in visits because um, uh, it's heavy and it's personal. So <clears throat> he was trying to explain how he feels. 
visas, there, there are uh, also long stretches of, uh, where time just passes with no thoughts, no rest, and no peace. An almost abstract anxiety that has no shape, where I strain to make myself think about anything, do anything, go anywhere. I can't really find a suitable analogy to describe that type of pain. It's not quite like drowning, for instance. Scatteredness and vibration are the main features, maybe a mathematical analogy. It's like running a power series in my head, a divergent sequence of nonsensical infinities, moving at a terrifying speed. I'm running out of space, which spares me having to get into darker details. Long story short is that I can't take it anymore. I try to convince myself that if I get all my prisoner rights, I'd be able to have a bit more patience. But the truth is, I'm not really sure that I have it in me anymore. Thank you. So That's, thank uh, you for sharing yeah. that. It is that kind of emptiness that with time, even your imagination, you know, the, to answer your question about prison, you really have to rely on your mind to, uh, to entertain you and, and uh, to, to make the time pass. And, and then with time, uh, your mind starts failing you and starts like you, we've exhausted all techniques. That's it. So that's where Ali is now. Thank you, Sana. And to remind um, viewers, uh, Alay has been in, in jail almost continuously since 2011. Um, and one of the reasons why there was um, some hope st- starting uh, last December was because you applied for Alay to get British citizenship because your mother, your mother uh, was born in the UK, which means that all of you could apply for British citizenship. Um, I, I would love to hear more about that and what the British government has done, has not done. Uh, my understanding is that your fates were in the hands of one Liz Trust, a trust who was, uh, who's now Britain's um, absolutely terrible prime minister, but was for a time the foreign secretary uh, and you were appealing to her. Did, did she act? Um, uh, what kind of support have you received in the UK? It's <clears throat> So I, I can't say she did not act because with this kind of government, your expectations start so low. So that when when they take on the case, it's kind of a surprise. But it's it's this. Uh, uh, so yeah. So for instance, we had Boris Johnson and then we had Liz Truss, and um, both of them took on Alice's case. Both of them said they will raise it, uh, which was very unexpected to everybody. And so so so. People in, in the UK and especially diplomats were like, it's the unsaid uh, thing. They don't say it explicitly, but it's like, uh, it's great that they took it. It's great that they're talking about it because they, as if like, they don't expect that, uh, uh, you know, like conservatives are, are, are expected to be racist and they are expected so, and we are dual uh, citizens. So that's like uh, uh, not considered uh, uh, a full citizenship. All of that is not said explicitly, but uh, the tone with, with the government is always like, uh, it's great that we're doing something, right? <laughs> so mm-hmm. she did take on the case, but are they actually using their leverage to, to save Ale or to get access to see him? I don't see that happening. Um, she did say before Parliament that she's going to work on release. But the FCDO continues to the uh, foreign ministry, uh, the British foreign ministry, continues to invest, um, to pour investments in Egypt. And 
the Egyptian authorities continue to uh, uh, they are not allowing the the embassy to visit Ali and <clears throat> They will not acknowledge his uh, British citizenship. They claim, like, that the, they have this very bureaucratic claim that Alep needed to take Egypt's permission before applying for another citizenship. And and we're in a deadlock where Alep has to ask himself for that permission. And Alep is in prison and he's unable to do so. So, sorry, he's Egyptian. We can't acknowledge his, him as a, as British. Um, and and the, and the British government is... Uh, is accepting this uh, this crazy narrative. So, yeah, they claim to be working on release, but they're not actually putting any uh, any any proper pressure on Egypt. Thank you for that. Um, I, the other day, Sana, you 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 and your sister and your mother have just been lobbying tirelessly and and meeting with with everybody who has any potential power in the situation. Um, I know you've also met with people from the climate movement. I, I, I'm, but the other day you lost your patience on Twitter a little bit and said you were fed up um, with the fact that that more connections weren't being made. And I just love to hear you talk a little bit more about that that frustration and what you what you see as the natural connections between the climate justice movement um, and the climate movement more broadly and the human rights situation in Egypt and what is happening um, uh, with people like Ale. I will. Just give context to explain where the frustration is coming from. Um, I think, I'm trying to understand, I think the way we see COP is different, each one of us from their perspective. So a lot of the climate movement already sees it as an event that is uh, it's not that important anyway. And we, <clears throat> or, or that is losing its importance. Um, and we in Egypt see it as a PR moment for the regime and when we say a PR moment, it's also, it's it's not just for the outside world. It's a PR moment on us. It's a show of force. It's a, a, a show of force locally. So there is this thing that I, I, that frustrates me that is that when we call on climate activists and we say that it's important for you to, to raise concerns publicly about human rights, um, you need to trust us that that means your voice has a value. Well, the frustration came from <clears throat> not from. I mean, I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm really touched by uh, by Bill and by you and, and by by certain individuals, but um, uh, and organized uh, groups more. Uh, that's the frustration where uh, where the frustration is coming from, especially Can and Greenpeace um, and, and others. Because there is sympathy. Uh, sometimes uh, human rights concerns are being raised privately, but there there is reluctance in in being vocal about a position and saying that's wrong publicly. And because this is a PR uh, stunt, and 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 because CC is using this event to 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 show force to the Egyptian people to say I am stable I am accepted in 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 the West don't challenge uh, there is no room to challenge me um, uh, so it's really important that the people who is <clears throat> uh, using as uh, in in this as a tool to speak up not just for 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 the for the journalists but for the Egyptian people watching that event. Um, and I, I don't feel that this call has been respected, really. 
um, uh, many of the organizations we we reached out to got back saying, uh, yes, we are raising your brother privately. You're not a government. I mean, the American uh, government is raising my brother privately. And it's 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 sad that, that the, the level that, to me, I get, I'm getting the same response from a government and an, an activist community. That's really uh, shocking. So, so, so you're saying that, 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 that NGOs, green groups are saying we're raising it privately, but they're not speaking publicly. If I'm understanding you right, yeah, and that's that the same act, response I get from governments. Department. I mean, that should be yeah, an insult. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's very interesting. I didn't realize that. That clarifies a lot. Um, okay, so Senna, thank you Not so much. Groups, oh, of course. Yeah, and there has been some solidarity. We've seen some rallies. We've seen some articles. Um, any just final thoughts before we say goodbye um, for for what your hopes are for the for the, this next crucial month leading up to the summit. I think, like, uh, for, especially for like, like the climate movement and the climate cause, forget about the prisoners because we already uh, made a lot of lobbying to ruin the PR moment uh, on that end. But it, it is really important if you're coming to Egypt that that you find a way to adopt a narrative that is uh, uh, relevant because this is an opportunity where you can have... Uh, uh, an audience uh, of activists and uh, uh, to to join in that cause, and it's not. Um, and we do have that in our history. We had climate activism, uh, and in in two thousand and twelve, um, uh, for, uh, <clears throat> um, um, uh, uh, a small village in it, Etku, uh, they protested against BP. Um, we, we've seen grassroots mo- movement when there was breathing room in Egypt. And so if you come to Egypt and adopt only a, a narrative that uh, 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 that's not relevant to, to, to what we're enduring right now, you're going to lose a big audience that is valuable, that knows how to mobilize, that has... Uh, suffered a lot but but still continues to find ways uh to 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 speak up and it's really an opportunity for us to to find to figure out a way to connect and to have a common dream um so yeah don't lose those allies um i think the loss will be bigger on climate more than human rights because already we managed to 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 make enough of a noise about the human rights situation that it would be very hard to ignore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're going to be talking a little bit later on about how, about ways to connect political freedoms, human rights um, with can, the climate if crisis. We have one more second. I can, sure, uh, sorry. I can also uh, end with a quote from Ale about the climate crisis. He was uh, in his book, so, uh, in his book, that was also written in prison. Um, he was saying the crisis for certain is not a crisis of awareness, but of surrendering to the inevitability of inequality. If the only thing that unites us is the threat, then every person or group will move to defend their interests. But if we meet around the hope in a better future, a future where we put an end to all forms of inequality, this global awareness will be transformed into positive energy. Hope here is a necessary action. <laughs>
our rosy dreams will probably not come to pass. But if we leave ourselves to our, our nightmares, we'll be killed by fear before the floods arrive. So I, I really want the climate movement to think about that, uh, that we need to have... There, there is an opportunity here that we join forces. And I, 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 I see that it's a, it will be a good way. It, it could be a great inspiration for both of us. Sana, thank you so much. Thank you for sharing that quote. Thank you for everything your family is doing. Um, I know that it is exhausting. Thank you, Naomi, for everything you're doing. <laughs> we love you. Um, um, that quote, by the way, we should see it everywhere. Everywhere. Let's see it on. Let's see it on banners. Let's see it. <laughs> it's abs- it, 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 it's it should be our motto going forward. It's so beautiful. Thank you so much, Sana. Now, on a completely different note, we're going to hear and see some of the PR coming out of Sharm El Sheikh, and then we're going to hear from another fantastic Egyptian journalist, intellectual novelist, Omar Robert Hamilton. Please stick with us for this incredible uh, live stream. Uh, We'll be speaking on these themes in a little bit more detail, uh, greenwashing in Egypt with our guest, Omar Robert Hamilton. Thank you so much for joining us, Omar. Hi, Rafi. How's it going? Good, good. So I'll just dive into this first question here. Uh, You you wrote in a recent article, the government is, is relentless in its mission to express its power over a populace through police violence, mass incarceration, media propaganda, and urban engineering, all emanating from a hyper-centralized core of, of control. So for you, Omar, how does hosting the COP27 really figure into this relentless mission for the state to express power domestically and, and gain legitimacy, uh, both regionally and on an international scale? Yeah, well, I suppose if we're thinking about COP, then we're thinking about, principally we're thinking about energy. And um, I think... One of the things about the Egyptian state is that it's stripped away all of the things that one could reasonably expect a state to provide from kind of functioning roads to healthcare to education to whatever. And the only thing it really does is keep the lights on. And so you really feel there how electrical power or motive power is political power for the regime and for the state. And of course, that's the same for any government, keeping the lights on is the central thing, as we've seen just now with Liz Truss is taking on 65 billion pounds of debt to keep people's energy prices down over the winter. And Sisi is uh, the same. Um, Anybody that was following Egypt in 2012 will remember how the last months of the Muslim Brotherhood's regime or administration were characterized by constant power cuts. And that was due to mismanagement on their part. There were some theories about sabotage at the time. But what was important was that the electricity kept cutting and that really, really, really undermined their legitimacy. And Sisi has been very careful not to repeat that mistake. He's taken on huge debts to build three combined cycle gas power plants that Siemens built that he took on, um, I think, 8 billion euros of debt at an undisclosed rate from German banks. And that made it the biggest deal in Siemens' history and um, built out a lot of electrical infrastructure so that now the state can produce about 50% more electricity than it actually ever needs to, even at peak demand. So clearly kind of power and electrical power and keeping the lights on is at the core of CC's claim to legitimacy. And, um, and I think what we're seeing with COP is now, if everybody is keen on sustainability, then, well, we can get behind that and we can 
be internationally celebrated for it. Like now, if green power is centrally controlled and is propping up an autocratic state, then this is suddenly something to be celebrated by the world. And um, so this is part of, I think, in the in the long term, sort of the position that this COP holds. But of course, in the short term, it's also just a big PR win. You know, it's uh, it's a mark of international legitimacy. As Bill said, it's the first COP to take place in a police state. Um, so this is what greater international legitimacy is there than, than dozens of world leaders and thousands of NGOs descending and sort of shaking hands and acting as if this is a normal place to be and to do business and to, in theory, work on addressing the kind of, you know, the most existential problem facing us as a species. Well, Mark, can you talk a little bit more about that, that PR machine that you mentioned, how it's uh, uh, making certain kind of climate action visible and, and then all different other kinds of actions or, or policies or needs um, invisible? Well, yeah, I mean, Egypt... Um, it both has a big PR operation that that obviously works to some extent because Egypt still is sort of thought of as a normal country. And so there is something that is out there and is working. And of course, part of that is just people keep telling you when you're when you're in other countries how, you know, just the fact that everybody studies Egypt and the pyramids and so on when they're young kind of sort of semi brainwashes them or something. So now, yeah, Egypt will push forward a very small sort of I mean, as we saw in that ad, like what's happening in that ad, it's sort of there are some not plastic straws and like a small electric car to go and have coffee in the desert. Like it's sort of totally surface and vapid and vacuous. And it feels like that when you're there as well, you know, like the thing of having the bike lane in a sort of desert highway that's probably sort of 45 degrees centigrade at the best of times. Um, so, yeah, there is a there is a PR machine of sorts, but I think it's, it's quite feeble. I mean, it, it, it's the arguments they're making are not strong arguments and they're not very hard to pick apart. So um, I think that will be very apparent to all the delegates that go to COP. Um, and, and, and it's not that easy to pull, to pull the wool over people's eyes about, about whether Egypt is currently a, a sort of a green and sustainable and um, sort of climate friendly actor, which um, you only need to spend five minutes in Cairo to, to realize that this is a, very polluted, very cement heavy, very congested, um, you know, urban or, or, you know, societal structures that have been built in, in, in ways that are enthralled to the worst elements of, of modern fossil capitalism, really. So, Omar, you mentioned these, uh, the, the delegates, obviously, the delegates to COP27. What, in your view, mm-hmm. is, is the responsibility of those who are going to show up um, uh, in Sharm el-Sheikh in, in uh Exactly like Naomi said, a month from today. Yeah. Well, I mean, what does Egypt want? Egypt wants international legitimacy, and it thinks that right now it's going to get it for free. Like, it thinks that right now it's going to get this big PR moment in exchange for what? Just for organizing this conference and uh, building a convention center, and that's what it takes, right? So that's their current analysis. And unfortunately, on the current trajectory, they seem to maybe have um, guessed things right because people are just going to go and people are just going to shake their hands and so on. And so I do think that the international community has to make sure that Egypt has to pay some kind of concessions for this legitimacy that they so seek. I mean, how can they have it both ways? They can't want legitimacy and at the same time act uh, really like one of the worst offenders in the world when it comes to human rights, when it comes to executions, when it comes to prisoners, when it comes to, um, I mean, and certainly then when it comes to their actual 
ecological agenda at home. I mean, they are uh, a gas state. Uh, gas sales on the CC have increased from 600 million to 8 billion. Um, they're pouring millions and millions and millions of tons of cement, uh, building new cities, building bridges, building tunnels. Um, they've cut down, I think the stat that someone put out is that 54 football pitches worth of trees in Cairo alone in the last two years. I mean, you know, there is an assault on the sort of physical world going on around you all the time there. Um, so there is no basis on which it can claim this legitimacy that it also seeks. Um, so let's force some concessions. I mean, if people, if delegates raise things with their uh, climate envoys, if they make sure that the COP presidency hears about people's hesitations and worries and and basically, I mean, there is a, a there is an international call for a prisoner amnesty, and that this should be the um, basic ask. This is the lowest ask there can be. That Egypt has the number keeps being put out that it's sixty thousand political prisoners, but it, it, I think it's probably much more. Um, this is a number that Human Rights Watch managed to piece together almost ten years ago at this point. But since then, they've built dozens of new prisons. Um, so I think the basic and the lowest level ask has to be that all prisoners of conscience, these are people who are in prison for their beliefs, for their opinions, they have not been tried or even charged with violent act. So these people have to be released. And this is how you reset things. And this is how you indicate that, okay, there is some wing of this regime that is actually interested in turning a leaf, that is actually interested in sustainability in its most positive forms, in building a different kind of future, and that it wants to be part of the international community in a real way. Um, we expect for governments to turn a blind eye, to talk about real politique, to make make uh, calculations that it's more important that Egypt is uh, politically stable than um, you know your kind of human rights concerns. But the fact that broadly, you know, all of international sort of climate civil society is going to be headed to COP as well just means that. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't know whether it is possible, um, but it does feel like there is a window of opportunity and it is now and it needs to be taken. And um, all of these delegates, all of these groups do need to work out how they can raise the alarm and how they can somehow signal that there is this low bar ask that is a unified ask that's come out from Egypt that, uh, that we have a month to try and uh, actually make into reality. Thank you. Uh, just on a, on a different note, really, from the from the politics of representation, really, uh, Naomi and I have heard from some, and I'm sure you have it all, as well, who feel hesitant, really, to, to critique this COP uh, because it's being painted as as the African COP. Uh, I mean, how would you respond to this thing, people with these concerns? Is it my place to to critique this COP? This is this is the African COP. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's sort of. I mean, of course, that's absurd, basically. And it is a line that's being put out there. And, you know, we can criticize a, a brown dictator just as much as we can criticize a white dictator. That's not really, um, that shouldn't be a problem. And, yeah, this point of being the African cop, you know, Egypt has put a lot of diplomatic energy into Africa in the last few years. But really, most of that has been a sort of soft war footing against Ethiopia, where it's been ringing Ethiopia with uh, military alliances and deals. Um, because there's a, sort of conflict brewing over the use of the Nile waters and Ethiopia has been building a very large dam for the last, I think, eight years or nine years. Um, 
So Egypt is trying to position itself as the sort of leader of the African bloc, that it's going to be negotiating on Africa's behalf, and that this is giving it this leeway. Uh, people talk about dividing the COP presidency from um, Egypt as a government and that the COP presidency should be enabled to act in the way that it's claiming that it's going to on behalf of Africa. Um, and we'll see. But, of course, what we really expect is that this is the COP at which really gas is going to be what's on the table and Egypt is going to be negotiating for African countries' right to exploit their gas reserves to fill the gap left by um, Russian gas going off the European market. So I do think that this is play acting from Egypt, um, that in the end Egypt is uh, a client state of Saudi Arabia and the UAE and the US and particularly the US military. So these are all obviously some of the largest sort of polluting actors in the history of industrial capitalism. Um, and those are the ties that the country and the regime and the state has that run deepest um, rather than that sort of alleged position as leading the African bloc. Um, so we'll see, but um but I do think that it's uh, it, it's it's being used as a shield for criticism when uh, it's it's uh, it's a bit too neat and yeah I don't really buy it personally. Yeah, so you mentioned energy transitions, right, and, and natural gas. That's one of the uh, uh, topics that will be on the table. Another one, just to get into what will be discussed at the actual COP, is loss and damages, right? This will be a big theme at, at this year's COP. And really, you know, Egyptians from urban residents in Alexandria to farmers in the Delta to rural residents in the South are owed climate reparations. But then there's this mm -hmm. difficult question, right, that, you, that you've written about a little bit. Um, how might a system of reparations be designed that doesn't prop up a, a, continued, a continued carceral state? Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to loss and damage, and so, yeah, like you're saying, Egypt isn't thinks we'll be negotiating on climate reparations. And, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know the details of what they think they can achieve. There was talk of 100 billion year, a year being unlocked that was pledged at Glasgow in climate financing through the global south. And, and this is sort of the target of the Egyptian COP and the UAE's COP to sort of unlock this financing. Um, and, of course, but from a within an Egyptian perspective, it feels very, very problematic to unlock any kind of financing that goes into the government. Um, and so the key question or one of the key questions is like, how do we think about climate reparations in a way that doesn't strengthen uh, autocracies that are suddenly interested in, in, in the language around sustainability? Um, and this is something that a lot of smart people are working on and, and people who are really within the process will tell you that uh, if you look at the UNFCCC's Green Climate Fund, this is a body in which, um, this question is central and that there are all kinds of um, restrictions in how climate finance is, is, is distributed that take this into account. Uh, I think we will wait and see what happens there. Um, but the fact remains that a country like Egypt is very keen on this idea of unlocking this free money. And so that alone tells you that there is something wrong here. Um, and yeah, I think... One would hope that <clears throat> if uh, a COP vehicle would be the kind of space in which you could talk about other other ways of thinking about reparations, right? Like other ways that 
balance the historical obligations and injustices um, of the last 200 years that don't strengthen these governments. And yeah, I wrote about it a bit and I think it was more of an opener. I think it needs to develop more, but I think there are things to think about intellectual property, for example. I think, uh, you know, removing patents and licenses from the kinds of technologies that could be rolled out really easily and that wouldn't necessarily need to be centrally controlled. Um, that's definitely something that could significantly shift the balance of power, I think. Um, and particularly, I think, People in the global north should be interested in looking at, um, you know, technologies that were developed using public research money in particular, I think would be first in line for a position within a kind of redistributive arrangement. Um, you know, the iPhone is the famous example where it's a sort of collection of, of technologies that were created using public research money, like the touchscreen and the GPS and the Internet itself. Um, and I think even voice recognition. So that would be one thing. And then, yeah, I mean, obviously there's the question of debt at the center of all of this, like, you know, African countries, global South countries are still struggling under massive debt repayments, mostly inherited from, you know, the end of the colonial era or in the sort of immediate aftermath, and um, which they kind of keep paying because they need to keep a toehold into the international financial system. But at the same time, the debts owed them by colonialism and by climate breakdown are completely dismissed and, and sort of treated as a fantasy while, you know, every month debt repayments or every year debt repayments are being made from south to north. And so reevaluating re those and actually looking at how Africa is a net creditor to the, the global north or to the actual sort of global capitalist system and, and what does that mean and how can we rethink debt? Um, and, yeah, uh, things to do with knowledge transfer, I think things to do with um, – thinking about infrastructure that doesn't fit within the size of a nation state, right? Like I think a lot of people are very interested in, in, in the decentralizing power of, of, of um, renewable energy, particularly solar panel desalination. Um, so there are things that you can do that, um, that, yeah, that create kind of energy resources that are outside of the central control of government. A country like Egypt is not going to allow that very easily, but it's definitely something to be thought about. Or something maybe that a country like Egypt would find harder to stop would be thinking larger as well, bigger than the nation state, thinking in terms of regional infrastructure projects, um, grids that run across several national boundaries and, um, and are administered by kind of transnational bodies. I mean, these are the kind of things that you could put money into um, as a Germany. You know, you could even sort of you know, come and build it and give Siemens another $80 billion to go and build, build it. Um, and these are the kinds of things that could... Uh, be part of a just transition that don't uh, keep propping up local autocrats. Um, but yeah, I don't think these are the kinds of things that are going to be on the table at this COP, um, as far as we can tell. I think that's exactly right. Um, thank you so much for, for your time, Omar, and for, and for giving our viewers really a, a deeper view of environmental politics in Egypt, but, but also in, in the region. So yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I'll now be joined again by by Naomi to, to, to conclude our event today. I was just thanking Omar and recommending his piece before the COP, Sustainable Power, um, which I've learned a, a great deal from. And I just tweeted if people want to take a look at that piece. Uh, I, we want to thank all of our incredible guests. Uh, this has just been a really special event. Bill McKibben joining us from his hospital bed. Don't worry, he's fine. Sharif Abdul-Kudus, Sanad Munasaif. And of course, just now, Omar Robert Hamilton. They've given us a really powerful education in the situation um, 
in which this climate summit is going to unfold the human rights situation, the economic situation, the political situation, the geopolitical situation. Uh, to close, we just want to share a few thoughts about the role of internationals who are headed uh, to Egypt or who are going to engage with the COP process from afar. Rafi, what should we be doing? So, yeah, this is the part of the event uh, where we talk about things that, that you can do if you want to be in solidarity with Egyptian prisoners and their families and really support the call for greater rights and freedoms in Egypt. So especially if you've decided to go to Egypt for the summit, um, but really also if you'll be following it and engaging it uh, from, from afar. So first, before I go into these, I really want to stress that this is not coming from our Egyptian guests. It's coming from people inside the international human rights movements who have been considered, who have considered this closely and who do not want Egyptians to take further risks telling internationals what to do. Because we've heard really thousands have landed in prison for far, far less. So one thing you can do is go to a website, uh, copcivicspace.net. And read a little bit about the demands developed by a coalition of Egyptian human rights activists and organizations. Uh, this space will, to my understanding, will be updated regularly. Naomi? Yeah, so if you are uh, traveling to the summit, something you could consider doing, and I know a lot of people have already booked their travel, but it's still worth considering, which is maybe don't go directly to Sharm el-Sheikh. Maybe you want to stop in Cairo and get out of that bubble fantasy land that we've been talking about and meet some real people. Meet meet and meet some of, if maybe some of those human rights groups are able to meet with you. Maybe some of the families of political prisoners are able to meet with you. If you are able to secure some meetings, bring media, document what you find. Be aware that the Egyptians that you meet in Sharm el-Sheikh are not free necessarily to speak their minds. Most have been closely vetted by the regime. That doesn't mean, you know, that there are all regime tools. It just means that their freedoms are, are, are restricted. So be careful when you're there not to put locals in danger, but consider taking the risks that are impossible for them. What else can, they, can folks do, Rafi? Well, yeah, for those of you who have decided to go to the COP, find ways to raise the issue of political prisoners and political freedoms inside and also importantly outside the summit. It is true, you, you may lose your badge, you may be deported, but you are not at the same risk as some of the local activists and organizers in Egypt. And I, I really do want to reiterate, none of this is going to be easy, uh, but we won't make real progress towards climate action if we don't defend these kinds of political freedoms on the ground in Egypt and elsewhere. And really, the best way to defend these freedoms are, are to use them, to exercise their, their potential to, to the fullest. Everything that we've won in this movement is because of activism. It's because of political pressure. It's because our politicians are afraid of us. They're afraid that we won't vote for them. Um, they're afraid of our sit-ins. They're afraid of protests. They're afraid of direct action in frontline communities. And when those freedoms are lost, when people are afraid of their rulers, then we're never gonna make progress. Um, so this isn't hard to understand. Political freedoms and climate justice are intertwined. So to quote Alain, his famous quote that is the title of his incredible book, which you should all pick up, you have not yet been defeated. Today, October 6, 2022, is day 188 of Alain's hunger strike. His life hangs in the balance. So we're going to give him the last word. We 
مش مطلوب مننا اننا ننتصر في انتصارنا للحق، مش مطلوب مننا اننا نبقى اقوياء في انتصارنا للحق، مش مطلوب مننا اننا نبقى جاهزين في انتصارنا للحق. ولا عندنا خطه كويسه ولا عندنا تنظيم كويس، مطلوب مننا فقط اننا نتمسك بالانتصار للحق. شكرا. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.